Good morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 through 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is to gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. The word of the Lord. I would like to begin with a question this morning. And the question is, are you looking for real life? Not just life, but real life. It's kind of a slippery phrase. What does that even mean, real life? Um, I think that uh, as slippery as that phrase might be, I, I think there's still the sense in which we all have this intuition that there's some kind of life out there somewhere that's available to us, a life that's real life, a life of joy, fullness, meaning, purpose, and love. And so as hard as it is to define, I, I want to suggest that one of the most foundational, non-negotiable components of a life worth living is a life with something worth dying for. That a life worth living is a life with something worth dying for. Now, that's a big statement. In fact, we need to be careful here because this could go sideways really quick. 
For instance, I was listening to an interview not all that long ago with a young woman who grew up in the church and, like so many people today, ended up leaving the church and, in fact, leaving faith in Jesus. And she was talking about how it seems like every single week she's realizing different ways the church harmed her. So that particular week she said she was thinking about how she was reading books about martyrs when she was nine years old. And as a result, she says, evangelicalism gave me an expectation that I have to die for a cause, and that's the only way I'll be loved. Maybe some of you have experienced something similar to this. It's a common idea, this idea that the only way I can know that my life has worth, dignity, and value is if I sacrifice it for some great cause. You see this in religion. You also see it in politics or ideologies or social movements and many other places. So there's a real danger here, but we also have to be mindful of the alternative because probably the reigning narrative in our culture is that the only life worth living is a life that is totally focused on fulfilling our own inner desires. And even though I think many people would say, oh, you know, life does include things like sacrifice and self-denial, that said, when you look at modern marketing and consumerism, when you look at modern science and medicine and, and technology, as wonderful as those things are and as much good as they have done for us in our world, at the same time, so much of those things are focused on helping us fulfill our inner desires and especially on helping us to avoid things like aging or death or inconvenience or pain or suffering or sacrifice or self-denial or even the slightest measure of discomfort. Our world is focused on how can we make our lives easier and happier and feel better about ourselves, and yet our world is full of increasing, in fact, skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, um, addiction, loneliness, and suicide. So where is this real life we're all looking for? Does it even exist? Um, we're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul is writing from a Roman jail cell. He's facing execution, and yet his life is full of, of life and security and peace and joy. How? For Paul, it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this passage we just read, Paul gives us three um, components uh, of the gospel that, that help us find the real life we're all looking for. Here's the three components. He says the gospel gives us a new passion, a new pattern, and a new power. A new passion, a new pattern, and a new power, okay? First, the gospel gives us a new passion, now, remember, Paul's in jail, and he really has no idea whether he's going to live or die. But Paul says, either way, for me, it's a win-win. Notice how he puts this. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this, that means his imprisonment and everything that's happening to him, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, that word deliverance can be a little confusing because it kind of sounds like Paul is he's, he's saying that he's certain he's going to get out of jail. But in reality, this word is the word salvation. And in the New Testament, yes, that can mean things like physical deliverance from oppression or trouble or physical sickness. But in the New Testament, the main meaning of the word salvation is salvation from sin and death. 
Paul is saying his salvation isn't wrapped up in whether he lives or dies or whether he stays in jail or goes free. In fact, it's the opposite. He's saying that even jail and execution can only turn out for my ultimate good. How? Well, here's why. Friends, this is the key. Paul is giving us the the definition of real life here. You want to know what it is? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, real life is Christ. Now, here's why this is so important for us. In fact, it's actually a pretty simple question. Imagine you're the one in jail and you're writing this letter and you get to the part where it says, for me to live is, how would you finish that sentence? For me to live is what? What would you say to that? You know, I just mentioned a bit ago that we all have this sense that there's some kind of real life out there that's available for us, but it's hard to define. And yet, here's the thing. Um, Whether we're conscious of it or not, every single one of us has a working definition of life because every single one of us is living for something. If you want to know your definition of life, ask yourself, what am I living for? In other words, ask yourself, what is the non-negotiable in my life? What is the one thing? I could lose everything else, but as long as I have this, then I know that my life has worth, meaning, and value. But if I lose this, then I lose everything. Do you know what that is? Do you know what you're living for? One way of finding out is when it falls apart. (laughs) For instance, if your children fall apart and you fall apart, it's because you're living for your children. Or if your career falls apart and you fall apart, it's because you're living for your career. Or if your grades or your reputation or a romantic relationship or a political cause falls apart and you fall apart, it's because you're living for your grades or the approval of others or romance or politics or whatever it might be. You see how this works. Now, some of you might not know what you're living for because it hasn't fallen apart yet. (laughs) You know what yet means? Y-E-T, you're eligible too. Friends, here's the thing. If you build your life, if the thing you're living for is anything in this world, then it will fall apart. The question is not if it will fall apart, but when it falls apart. And when the thing you're living for falls apart, you will fall apart. Still, to me, one of the most eloquent expressions of this comes from the great writer David Foster Wallace. I quote this every couple of years because it's worth hearing every couple of years. In a famous speech he gave at Kenyon College in 2005, David Foster Wallace said this, In the day-to-day trenches of life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Do you hear what he's saying? 
If you live for anything in this world, like if you say, this is the thing that's going to fill that aching hole in my heart. This is the thing that's going to give me real life. If you put those kinds of expectations on anything in this world, then not only will your expectations crush that person or thing, but their inevitable failure to live up to your expectations will crush you. Friends, there is only one thing in this world that you can safely build your life on. Only one thing in this world that will never fall apart, and the reason is because it's not something in this world. It's Jesus Christ, the creator of this world, and everything in it, including you. And if you build your life on Him, He's the only thing, the only one who will never fail you, never let you down, and never fall apart. That's the reason Paul has so much security and joy here. It's because his life isn't built on himself and how he's doing. It's built on the gospel and how the gospel is doing. It's built on Jesus so that no matter what happens to him, all he cares about is that through him, Christ would be made known and revealed to other people. In fact, I love the way he puts this. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That word honored uh, in, in the original language, literally the, the Greek word is megaluno. Now, you see how the word mega is in there? Not maga, mega. Mega means large or huge. You know how if you put a magnifying glass on something, it gets really big? All Paul cares about is that when people look at his life, all they would see is Christ magnified. Friends, the gospel gives us a new passion. It gives us real life because real life is Christ. Now, there is a danger here because uh, I think we've all seen the harm that comes into the world when religious people become consumed with a passion for God, but that passion gets distorted. And as a result, um, we frequently say, well, look, religion is fine as long as we keep it private. The real problem is when religious people bring their faith out into public. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the gospel gives us a new passion, but secondly, it gives us a new pattern. Paul continues in this passage with a reflection on his situation. It's actually a lot like that famous speech in Hamlet, you know, to be or not to be. That is the question. Except for Paul, there is no question. Hands down, he would rather die and be with Jesus. Notice how he puts it. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better Paul is saying that his greatest desire would, would be to die and, and go be with Jesus. And yet, even though that's his deepest desire, notice he goes on to say, amazingly, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Paul is saying, even if I had a choice, I would stay alive. And understand something, for Paul to stay alive means for Paul to continue suffering. You know, there's this place um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is talking about his life and how, like, his life is just full of suffering. He just goes through this list, and he says, my life is full of imprisonments and beatings and floggings. I was almost stoned to death once, he, uh, full of shipwrecks and starvation and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure and nakedness. Paul's life was full of suffering, and yet he's saying, if I had a choice, I would stay. Why? He says, 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is saying, if, if the choice comes down to my deepest desire or your greatest good, every single time I would choose your greatest good, even though it means sacrificing my deepest desire and enduring incredible suffering, what is that good that Paul is so willing to sacrifice everything for? He says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is saying that the greatest good, the greatest good is for other people to know Jesus and be transformed by His love. But in order for that to happen, Paul has to sacrifice his deepest desire and endure incredible suffering. Friends, this is the pattern of the gospel. The pattern of the gospel says that, that real life, the real life of God's transforming love comes into this world through weakness and vulnerability. You realize that is the opposite of our world. The, the pattern of our world says, no, no, you have to be strong, be powerful, be successful, be amazing, be rich, thin, and beautiful, be an influencer, be a winner. Our world says that real life comes if you're virtuous and powerful and successful. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, inherently wrong with those things. The problem is that we have a tendency to use those things as a way of kicking God off the throne of our hearts, that we have a tendency to use those things as a way of playing God rather than trusting in God. But the pattern of the gospel says that God's love, God's life comes into this world through weakness and vulnerability, because the weaker we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more... God is re-enthroned in our hearts and magnified in our life. Now, here's what this means for you and me. Paul is saying this is the pattern of the gospel. He's reflecting on his own life, but the pattern of the gospel isn't just for Paul. It's not just for this apostle and, and minister of the gospel. He takes everything he's talking about, and he applies it to the Philippians. Notice he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that phrase, your manner of life, in the original language, it's just one word that means live as a, citizen, as a citizen of a city. That's what the word literally means, live as a citizen of the city. Now, here's what this means. The Bible, in many ways, is the story of two cities. There's the city of humanity, and there's the city of God. The Bible is the story of two cities, city of humanity, city of God. And those two cities have always been in conflict. In fact, in the Roman Empire, you were legally required by law to worship the emperor. You were legally required by law, everybody in the Roman Empire, to say, Caesar is Lord, publicly. But the thing is, the Christians wouldn't say that. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they said, no, no, Jesus is Lord which might sound, oh yeah, we've heard that before, Jesus is Lord, sounds like something these crazy, crazy born-again people say. But in reality, the earliest Christians said Jesus is Lord. That wasn't just a theological statement, that was a political statement and a deeply subversive public statement at that. And as a result of that statement, they suffered. And Paul is saying that's the pattern of the gospel. In fact, notice how he goes on to put this. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, look carefully at this. Paul is saying the gospel is not only about personal belief, 
personal faith in Jesus, although it is that. He's saying it also means that you're going to be called out into the world publicly to bring your faith into public, but, but if you do that, you're going to suffer. And they did. The first Christian suffered tremendously. And here's the thing, really, it's kind of amazing. Th- there was ways they could have said, look, this Christianity thing is just a private faith. It's all about personal salvation. And if they had said that, the Roman Empire would have left them alone. Faith is fine. Faith is safe as long as you keep it private. You know, the same thing is very true in our own culture. Oftentimes, people will say, look, faith and religion, all of that is fine as long as you keep it private. And there are very good, understandable reasons people say this, because whenever religious people want to exert power and influence in this world, especially political power, um, that always doesn't turn out so well for the world. But here's the thing. Paul is not saying, look, just, just keep your faith private. He's saying, no. The question is not whether Christians should bring their faith into public. The question is how we bring our faith into public. The pattern of the gospel means that that the power of God comes into the world through weakness and vulnerability, not through power and strength, not through taking up arms, but through laying down our lives and, and living our lives publicly in the earthly city as citizens of the city of God, giving up our lives, giving away our lives in weakness and vulnerability, and that can change the world. For instance, in 1963, Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, this letter was a a big challenge to white Christians at the time. Dr. King was challenging white Christians um, because he was disappointed in the white church um, for not supporting the civil rights movement and, in, in many cases, outright opposing it. But here's the amazing thing. In the letter, Dr. King did not say, you know the problem with you Christians is you're just too public about your faith? The problem is you're just too extremist about your faith? No. He said the problem with you Christians is you're not public enough with your faith. He said you need to be more extreme with your faith, not less. In fact, I love the way he puts this. At one point in the letter, he says, wasn't Jesus an extremist for love? Wasn't Amos the prophet an extremist for justice? Wasn't Paul an extremist for the gospel? This is Martin Luther King. He says, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? Friends, the tragedy in our world today is that there is still so much to be done to address the cancer of racial injustice in our country. And yet, the civil rights movement remains one of the most vivid pictures of the power of the gospel to absolutely transform society, not through power and strength, not through taking up arms, but through weakness and vulnerability literally through police, hose, uh, police dogs and fire hoses, through imprisonments, beatings, and deaths, the very same thing that Paul went through. In the world's eyes, it looks like weakness, but that was a deeply subversive power that went all the way to the White House. Friends, here's the point. The pattern of the gospel means that we live our lives publicly in the earthly city as citizens of the city of God, and that means laying our lives down for the earthly city. The, the, the story of the Bible is the story of two cities, and those cities are in conflict with each other. But 
only the city of God. It's the only city that lays its life down for the other city. That's the power, I mean, the pattern of the gospel. But there's one more component, Paul says, the gospel gives us in order to find the real life we're looking for. We've seen that the gospel gives us a new passion. It's Christ. The gospel gives us a new pattern that's laying down our lives for the sake of someone else's good. But lastly, the gospel gives us a new power. Because here's the question. How in the world are we going to live our lives like this? Especially when we look at, you know, what did this look like for the early church? I've already mentioned, you know, a couple of ways, but um, let me tell you about Teresa Morgan. She is a scholar, a historian at Oxford University. She is, uh, she wrote a book, it's hard to see the title, it's called Popular Morality in the Early Roman Empire. Teresa Morgan is an expert uh, in ancient morality. So what was morality like in the ancient world? Teresa Morgan calls it an ethic of survival. So here's how she describes it. She says, this is a world, the Roman Empire, of vast social inequality and enormous economic insecurity. They were, there were no social safety nets. If you lose your livelihood, if you lose your land, you're on the streets. Sheer survival from day to day dominated the thinking of almost everybody all the time. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world like that? In the ancient world, it was morally praiseworthy to harm your enemy because that meant you were protecting your own. In the ancient world, there was no caring for the poor and the oppressed because to care for the oppressed and the poor would have meant taking food out of your own family's mouth in order to do that. But Teresa Morgan goes on to say this. She says, but when you read the New Testament, when you look at the early church, you see a community of people on the bottom of society who risked their own lives to care for the poor and the oppressed, and not just in the church, but throughout society. And by the way, if you look up all the historical records, you can see there are many examples of different ways this um, was played out in the life of the early church. Things like um, they would sacrifice their lives to care for people during the plagues. They would go out to trash heaps outside of the cities and rescue babies who had been abandoned to die. The early church would welcome marginalized women into the church, women who uh, were divorced or prostitutes or slaves, and not just welcome and shelter them, but, but actually offer them positions of leadership in the church. Now, we might look at that and say, well, how noble, how stirring, how inspirational. We kind of love those examples until we realize what it actually cost them to live like that. It cost them their homes. It cost their jobs. It cost their livelihoods. And in many cases, it cost their lives. What in the world could motivate them to live like this? It might be easy to think, well, maybe they were motivated by that same dynamic we heard from that young woman at the beginning of the sermon. Remember what she said? I have to die for a cause, and that's the only way I'll be loved. I have to die for a cause because that's the only way I can be loved. That still is um, a very powerful and very destructive idea that can be at work in our society. Another way of saying it is this, I have to be worthy first before I can be loved. We think a lot of times we have to be worthy first before we can be loved. You know, um, what does that look like in our lives when that's played out? If that's true, then the questions really are, you know, how much do I have to sacrifice? 
How amazing do I have to be? How good do I have to be? How many good deeds do I have to do? How, how powerful and successful do I have to be? How much do I have to sacrifice? If that's the logic of, of how God's love works in this world, then the answer is never enough. You're never done. There's always one more sacrifice to make, always one more good deed to do, always one more rule to obey, always one more level of spirituality to attain. You're never done. We think I have to be worthy first before I can be loved. But what if, just what if, what if instead of beginning with being worthy, what if we could just begin with being loved? Forget about worthiness. What if we could just take worthiness off the table and just begin with being loved? You would have a peace and an assurance and a security that nothing in this world could disturb. You would have a deep abiding comfort that nothing in this world could shake. You would have a power in your life that comes from a love that's in, in the center of your heart because you would know that you have a love in your life that isn't based on you or anything you do. It's based on God and what He's done for you. Friends, that's exactly what the gospel offers us. We think I have to be worthy first before I can be loved. There are lots of religions that will give that to you, but only the gospel says you're not loved because you're worthy. You're worthy because you're loved. You're not loved because you're worthy. You're worthy because you're loved. Friends, the ultimate place God shows us that love is on the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, in our world, whenever we build our lives on something other than God, it's a way of kicking God off the throne of our hearts. It's a way of playing God rather than trusting God. And yet this God, instead of rejecting us and crushing us, He came pursuing us. The only way that we can experience this love is through the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, the only way he could say that is because on the cross, Jesus said, to live is you and I will die to gain you. The, the reason that the overriding passion of Paul's life could be to make much of Christ is because on the cross, Jesus' overriding passion was to make much of you. Friends, the gospel comes into this world not through power and strength, but through weakness and vulnerability, and the cross is the ultimate example of a God who became weak and vulnerable in order to save you and welcome you into His love. So if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith, or even if you've been following Jesus for years, listen, I don't know if you ever experienced that pressure to be worthy first before you can be loved, but to be honest, I think it's impossible, impossible for us to escape that because our culture is full of that pressure. At the core of every human heart is a desire just to be loved, and yet at the core of every human heart, there is a deep, horrible fear that we could never be loved. The gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ is the antidote to that fear and the provision of that love. And if you're exploring faith this morning, I want to encourage you, would you be willing to consider the possibility that that love is pursuing you? And ask yourself, how am I responding to God's pursuit of me? And if you are a Christian, you know, the big exhortation here is, is to live our lives publicly in the earthly city as citizens of the city of God. 
That, that's the big message Paul is giving them here. And the rest of this letter spells out all the different implications and applications of that. But here's the thing. If, if Christ is the passion of your life, because the power of His love is now dwelling in your heart, that means that now you can live out the pattern of the gospel in the world around you. Because real life is real love. Real life is real love, and real love is giving yourself away. Real love is giving yourself away, losing yourself for the sake of others, giving yourself away with all the fearless, profligate abandon of someone with nothing to lose because you know that you have already gained everything in Christ. Because you know that, that your deepest desire now is someone else's greatest good. And you know that because on the cross, Jesus Christ's deepest desire was your greatest good. Do you know that today? And are you living that out in your life today? If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, Father, Lord, we thank you that you created us in love. You created us for love. You created us for yourself. Father, we confess that, um, that in so many ways we seek power and glory and beauty and success and strength in this world as ways of playing God in our own life. And we confess that to you, but Father, we also thank you that instead of rejecting us and crushing us, you came pursuing us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that you would help us um, to see more and more clearly and, and to experience more and more deeply the power of your love in our lives, the power of your life giving itself away for us, that we might um, discover and realize you, Lord Jesus, as the new passion of our lives and that we might live out the pattern of your gospel in this world as citizens of your city for the good of others. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.